from The Advocate Magazine, you're listening to LGBTQ&A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is an interview with Alexei Romanoff and David Farah that I wanted to bring you in honor of LGBTQ History Month. They talk about the protests that happened at the Black Cat in Los Angeles. This was 1967. Alexei helped organize and lead the protest, and is also the last known person still alive who was there. He talks about the police raid that led to the protest, the massive number of people that showed up for it. It was about five to 600 people, which was unheard of for the time. And then also David, his husband, is here. And David really helps to explain the historical significance of not just the protest, but the trial that resulted. This occurred about two years before Stonewall for context. They also talk about fighting for trans rights and why LGB people need to stand with those in our community who are trans. And I don't know, Alexi is 80 and we tend to assume that older generations are out of touch. So I think it's really a great example of how that's not always the case. So that leads me to my very last point, which is that the midterms are coming up incredibly soon. And as we know, it is absolutely critical that we vote. Vlad and their Amp Your Voice campaign is making it easier than ever for you to do that. So to take the pledge to vote, there is a link in the show notes, or you can go to glad.org slash amp your voice. All right, that's it. Let's get to the interview. So I want to give some context just because not everybody has heard of the Black Cat protest. And I say that because I had not heard of it until about a year ago. And so, Ooh. yeah, especially living in L.A. So two years before Stonewall was the Black Cat protest and Stonewall was important. It just is not the only and was not the first. And I get frustrated because we only talk about Stonewall as kicking it off. So I'm really excited to have both of you here. Thank you. Why do you think that we don't talk as much about the black cat. Let me say, I take nothing away from Stonewall. Stonewall was very important. Absolutely. We were the first large demonstration in the world at the black cat. There had been a raid on New Year's Eve, and the police brutality was unbelievable, and it extended down to another gay bar that was a short distance away that was called the New Faces. I belonged to an organization called Pride at the time. And uh, we, we heard about this, and we were horrified from what we heard. At that time, two men kissing longer than a few seconds were considered a crime. It was, it was as if you had started to count the end of the world, you know. And these police came in and beat the people who were there. They were undercover police officers, and uh, nobody knew what was happening. And they were, these people were charged with... uh, Lewd conduct. Lewd conduct. So what happened was, we heard all about it. We were upset, as any community community would be upset. Uh, We started to organize. Now, there were no computers. There were no internet. There wasn't any internet. There wasn't anything like that. So what we did was we did a thing we called a phone tree. That's where 10 or 15 or 20 people called 10, 15 or 20 people who then called 15 or 20 people. And that's how the word got out. 
And so why did you guys have phone trees before this? Like, what were they used for since this was the first for, gathering, right? For, for communicating with each other, just as you use your computers today. Oh, for other things or besides cell phones today. I mean, that was the same thing, but it was in its day. It was different than today, but it was really the same. You know, people are the same. We're the same flesh and blood that we were then and that we are now. Yeah. And when you're being abused, and after the Second World War and the Nazis, and knowing all about that sort of thing and what had happened in the death camps, we were determined that we were not going to go down that road, at least quietly. Oh, so that was very much in your mind during well, this time. Well, no, that was part of our upbringing as we grew up. The, the knowledge of what had happened there. Because our parents, and some for some of us probably, our grandparents were there and then immigrated to this country. I'm not going to divert from what we're talking about, but my history is a, went from being in the Ukraine when the fascists were coming from the Nazis were coming and uh, my mother was afraid because of who I was that if it was known and how the fascists were treating mixed people of different races she feared for me and what she did was she took me eastward and we went all the way eastward to where my grandparents ancestors came from and there was family there and that was Manchuria so, wow, and then I then we got to the United States. Wow, um, no, I think that's fascinating. Please don't. But hold that's that not. Back. That's yeah, that's not what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Uh, so before you, you mentioned that kissing for a couple seconds in public could be lewd conduct. Uh, David, can you just was there a definition for that back then? Yes, the current statute under California law is six forty seven a. It's the lewd conduct statute. Now, today, the lewd conduct statute is specific. It's uh, showing your genitals, having sex in public. Back then, it wasn't specific. Anything that the community considered to be lewd conduct was, uh, was a punishable offense. Any kissing for any time between two men was generally considered lewd conduct. Now, there had been a case in California prior to the black cat raids in California between two women kissing, and they fought the lewd conduct charge and they actually won that. But men kissing was not acceptable. So uh, the charge that most men were arrested from gay bars was for lewd conduct, and it was an amorphous sort of statute that they could take them and say any any kind of behavior. Alexi had a friend once that was uh, charged with lewd conduct because his partner spilled a drink on himself in a bar, and the man tried to wipe it off. And the mere touching to wipe off the drink was considered lewd conduct, and he was arrested. Now, that wouldn't happen anymore under the statutes, or at least wouldn't be prosecuted, because the statutes are more specific, but they weren't at that time. But you also have to go back at that time. It's not just the criminal statutes. In 1967, the American Psychiatric Association considered gay uh, to be a mental illness. It was not removed from the diagnosis of, uh, of uh, psychiatric illnesses until 1973. And in California, sodomy, acts of uh, sex between two men, were considered... Uh, criminal offense until 1975. So this is still many years before when merely being gay was being considered a mental illness even if you didn't act on it, and you could be committed by your family or by the police against your will. If you had an act of gay sex, 
that was a criminal offense. So in addition to having no protection under the law at all, being subject to being fired, losing your housing, losing your friends, losing your profession, if you were uh, out gay, meaning you could, you could be denied your professional license, you also be, could be considered a mental, a mental case and you would be, uh, for gay sex, could be charged under the criminal statute. So you have to understand in 67 what being openly gay entailed. It wasn't like today. Right. And at that time, if you were charged, you also were added to the sex offenders list. Is that correct? Yes. If you were convicted under the lewd statutes, uh, you would be automatically a registered sex offender for life. It wasn't that you were for a period of years. It was for life. It's outrageous now. You think it's outrageous now. But if you think in 50 years what behavior now will be considered outrageous, it's the same sort of thing. Denying transgender individuals the right to use their own bathroom, I'm sure is going to be considered outrageous in 50 years. I, I hope it's outrageous in 10. I hope it is, too. Yeah. But I hope we're, we're it's looking outrageous back that way. sooner. Yeah. Sooner than 10. I don't have that long to wait. Well, I'm, yeah. I intend to be here, but I'm saying I hope it's sooner. The sooner, the better, because the world would be in a better place. It's not just the people who benefits benefit from that, because... When you have an illegitimate law preventing people from doing certain things, that affects society. And you have to attend to what is. You gotta stand up, you gotta say, I'm mad as hell and I'm not gonna take it anymore, like we did then. Can I add one thing about the transgender status issue? Is gay and lesbian history is never discussed in standard historical texts. Not the fact that we've had three gay presidents already. People like Louisa May Alcott was transgender, that Horatia Elger was gay. You never hear anything about our history, but in the in the context of gay history, even when it's reported, the transgender contribution is simply not known because the words to describe the state of being transgender weren't even, it re- weren't really well defined until maybe the last 20 years. So if you go back to the history books in L.A., the first uh, really well-documented protest against uh, a raid was at Cooper's Donuts in the yes. 1950s. That is reported as a gay uh, action, but actually it was a transgender action, not a gay action. And when you look at Stonewall, the Stonewall riots, it's reported that it was led by drag queens. That's quotes, drag queens. But actually, those who are living now who were there at the time, as the drag queens was, they were actually transgender individuals. So the tra- the transgender issue is intimately tied with gay and lesbian civil rights, and their history is intimately tied with us. We have enough problems just keeping the history as a whole piece, but separating it out still hasn't been done. There's still lots of work to be done in that area. And, and now, is that an issue with us trying to rewrite history, or is that an issue with labels, since they have been so uh, flexible and fluid? Yeah, the labels are fluid. Um, When I was young, uh, uh, there were derogatory terms for what were probably transgender people, and then there was transsexual, which was kind of a term that was also used for cross-dressers who were mainly straight. Then it became transgender, and now transgender seems to be going seems to be going on the out to non-binary or something else that they're comfortable with that's not a defining term. And I'm sure in another 20 years it'll be the same problem. Yeah. Well, is a transgender person in 2017, was that an X for 2037 when you're trying to go back in the history? So it is, it's difficult to deal with. Nobody should tell you what you should be known as. That's up to you. You're the person 
Who you are and what you do is important, but how you're called should be up to you. If I want to be called a derogatory name, I'll tell you to call me that name, but don't do it on your own. Right. You know, like it said, David said, there was such a thing as, there was transsexual. It, they're, they're going to become who they are or are who they are, but are just expressing it openly, has nothing to do with sex. It's with the person they are. Um, something you said dawned on me that it was more or less illegal to touch or to kiss in public. Is that why the raid happened at the party on New Year's Eve? Because it was guaranteed kissing at midnight? No, what, no. what had happened was uh, there had been an explosion of gay bars in the prior 20 years in all the major cities after World War II. And there had been frequent gay bar raids in the Los Angeles area up through about 1964. There had been a truce called citywide, and there hadn't been any gay bar raids for about two years prior to New Year's Eve 66-67. What had happened in the election of 66 was Ronald Reagan was elected governor of California. And with the change, he became governor that night at midnight. With the change of party, the uh, Ramparts Division of the Police uh, police, uh, of Silver Lake, which... Uh, was the Silver Lake area where the two bars were, decided that they could now go back and start raiding gay bars. So what they did is, the two bars that were raided, the Black Cat and the New Faces, were only three doors down from each other. There, the first bar to be raided was the Black Cat, but there were plainclothesmen in the New Faces, and it was to be raided anyway. The following week after the first raid, two other bars in Silver Lake, the Stage Door and the Rams Head Inn, were also raided. There were 45 men total arrested from those four bars. At that point, uh, the pushback on the police got good enough that they w- there were negotiations with the gay organizations that were local in Silver Lake, and they decided to call a truce again. So as far as we know, there may have been more, but I only know of the four. They were one week apart, so they were really literally seven days apart. And that's what sparked the uh, the demonstration. To go back a bit as to how the demonstration came about was, there were a number, um, Los Angeles and New York were hotbeds of gay and lesbian organizations, social organizations after World War II, and particularly Los Angeles. And in May of 1966, one of the social organizations formed called PRIDE, which was an acronym, initially Personal Rights Through Defense and Education. The I of PRIDE came from the second letter of rights. That organization was founded both as a social organization and explicitly to supply attorneys and bail bondsmen for gays that were and lesbians that were arrested in this type of yeah, in this type of raid, so uh, when uh, the Black Cat opened in October of '66, the New Faces opened probably five years earlier. The reason why Alexei was significant in this uh, demonstration not only was he one of the people that planted and carried it off, but when the New Faces had opened five years earlier, he was actually the co-owner. He was a bartender working at another bar called the High Spot, and uh, a woman who was straight, who was uh, a officer in Diners Club, which was one of the first credit cards in the 1950s. She made money. She wanted to invest it, and gay bars were lucrative businesses at that time. Uh, This woman's name was Lee, L-E-E, Roy, R-O-Y. She was straight. She wanted to open a gay bar. She didn't know the business. She'd heard about Alexi as a bartender, that he was such a good bartender and a manager, and she went and talked to him and offered him a 45-55 split to open the bar. Now, Alexi was not co-owner when the New Faces was raided. He had sold out his share some months earlier, but he was intimately 
familiar both with his partner, Leroy, and with the other people at that bar. So it wasn't just a casual relationship that he heard about. It was actually personal. When the raid occurred on first New Year's Eve and then a week later, there were three active local gay organizations in that area. One was Pride, Personal Rights Through Defense and Education, which had then changed its name to Personal Rights in Defense and Education to get a bit an actual I in the name. <laughs> there was the Southern California Council on Religion and the Homophile, which was an organization started in 1964 to bring churches together so that they weren't so anti-gay, to start a dialogue. And there was the local organization of gay bar owners in that area, which was called the Tavern Guild. When the raids occurred, and then they had the phone tag, and they decided what to do, Pride took the lead and uh, wanted to meet to decide how to respond to this. No place was large enough for us to meet at, because we had, at that point, developed so many allies that it was hard to find a place. And some places wouldn't open themselves up to me or to us as a group because they were afraid of their licenses. There was a bar in Hollywood that opened up. It was a gay bar, and it was called Aunt Charlie's. And the ABC board threatened to take their license away because their name was too suggestive. So that's the fear. I only tell that because of the fear that the bar owners had. There was a bar on on Santa Monica Boulevard called The Hub. And he said, we could meet there, but not when the bar was open. So that's what we did. And that's where we did our planning and our, our how we were going to approach this. And to approach it was we decided to have a demonstration. Now, that was very unusual. Now, there was the Manishan Society, and during the McCarthy era and thereabouts, they had small demonstrations. The demonstrations were six to eight people. If you were a man, you had to have a suit on. If you were a woman, you had to have a skirt or a dress on for the demonstrations. We went on to start this interest in having a large demonstration. We really didn't think of how large it was going to be, but by the time we contacted all other people, there were supposed to be four demonstrations that evening in, in Silver Lake and in different communities. And by doing that, we thought we could pull the police apart to cover all of the demonstrations. There were the anti-war demonstrators, who had been beat up about three months before. There was our demonstration. There was a Latino demonstration planned. And there was a black demonstration planned. And by doing that, we thought we could make the police less effective against us. And and now, these are not gay groups, right? No, that's correct. Let me tell you what happened there. Only the anti-war demonstration and the gay rights demonstration came about that day because members of the Latino community objected to being connected with a homosexual group and the members of the black community objected. Now, that's not saying about all of them, 
because some of them probably came to our demonstrations, both the anti-war and the gay demonstration at the Black Cat. If you look at the pictures that were taken, they were all taken by the free press. None of the regular news media covered the demonstration. Yet, we had 500 to 600 gay men, lesbians, and those who support us at that demonstration. And what had happened out of that is that we grew more powerful and we, this demonstration was at night. So any of the pictures you see now of the demonstrators with their signs, and there's a lot of them around, that was because it was at, started at 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock at night. And we moved, we kept moving around in a circle so we couldn't be charged with loitering. And we also had flyers that we had either mimeographed or Xeroxed or something. And we had these flyers and we would hand them out to the public as they went by. If anybody threw a flyer on the ground, we ran over and grabbed it so we wouldn't be accused of littering. We didn't want any reason that they could term this demonstration as being illegal. There was no media coverage because there was a, an agreement with the newspapers and the press not to cover gay events. There was, there was an actual you know, uh, rule that they would not cover these things. You can't find coverage of this. There was uh, a couple of stories like in the New York Times 67 where some of two of Reagan's uh, appointees were uh, rumored to be homosexuals, but that's about all it was. That was an agreement with them. I, I don't know at what point, but I believe it was during the, uh, roughly around this time as well that you couldn't actually like, report on the word homosexual because it was deemed pornographic, even reporting in newspapers. Maybe that was earlier as well. Well, they did use the word in the 60s, but it was a derogatory term. It was, it was, used, it was used like homosexual. You know, oh. it, wasn't, it wasn't like... That's why the word gay actually became ado ad adopted by the gay community because it's, it's uh, not an offensive term. The word gay, I can tell you where that came from because I was so young when we started using it. We could be sitting in a restaurant with people all around us and by knowing what we called the gay lingo, we could communicate with each other without anybody around us knowing what we were talking about. Now, if a gay person walked through the door, we would look at them and we would say, isn't he gay? Meaning happy or joyous. And the people at our table knew immediately what we were talking about, that somebody that we thought was gay came in the door and they would take note of the person. So it was used as a descriptor, just like a slang almost. Yeah. It was used as a, as a uh, code word. When I was in Michigan growing up, the word we used was Canadian. You'd say, oh, look at those Canadians sitting next to us. And it, and it was completely, no one else would guess it because I was a couple miles from the Canadian border. But that wasn't how the word was actually used. You had to have code words in public. You didn't want to say anything about uh, that could you, identify someone and, and cause trouble. Yeah. You put yourself in danger if you did. And and that is why I thought that I read that um, you did not want media coverage from the protests of the Black Hat because then you would be outed. We didn't think that much about oh. media coverage. We really didn't. You know, we were interested in the outcome of our protests. And 
who we would re- rejuvenate or who we would get to finally come out. Remember, we could be fired in those days for just being gay. Wait, before you go on, you can also be fired for just being gay in the majority of the United States in 2017. So that hasn't changed. You can also lose housing in the majority of the United States today in 2017 just for being gay. You have no protection. Sorry, go but ahead. But what was more important, you would lose your job if you were outed. You would lose your income. You would lose your home. And maybe your family would even alienate you or isolate you or having you confined in an institution. So... We went, we did it. I was absolutely amazed at the amount of people who turned out. It was 500 to 600 gay men and women, lesbians, and the terms we had then, and those who support us. Remember, we weren't all alone. There were people from the straight community. That's nice to hear. Yeah, when I moved to California, My first landlady was a Japanese woman, and she had been fairly newly released from the internment camps during the Second World War. Everything she had owned was sold off on her in leaving there. And these are American citizens, so you know. And she was so sweet to me. I mean, she was like a second mother. She used to leave. She she was an empty nester, and she would make more food than she could just eat, and she would leave these beautiful little Japanese trays with food in them inside my door when I was before I would come home from work or after I would come home from work. And I can remember my first laundry I did by hand, and it was terrible. And I hung it out on the line there because they still had clotheslines then. And I came home the next night, and there was all of my clothes were rewashed and (laughs) were pressed and folded and put inside my door. (laughs) And And I would say to her, you can't keep feeding me like this. I have to pay you more. She says, I make it anyway, and I would throw it away. So that's, that's what we experienced. That was Silver Lake. That was Los Angeles. That was the support. Somebody who understood what it was like to be condemned just because of who you are. That's yeah. discrimination. Yeah. You mentioned the size of the protests in the 500, 600 range. I was reading about earlier protests that happened in pickets, and uh, there's quite a few in Philadelphia every 4th of July. And these had a, you know, a couple dozens of people. Less than that. Yeah. Like, I mean, the Manishan Society, when they were picketing in Washington in front of the White House, there was only six or eight of them. Yeah, so for you guys, it'll draw that and also, much as wild. The Manishan Society originated in Los Angeles, right off of Silver Lake, up the steps, where Harry Hay started that organization. And I mean, were you? Did you know Harry at that point? I met him. I met him. Yeah, I wouldn't say we were close friends or anything like that, but he was older than I was at the time, and here I am. I'm eighty now. 
It's all, sorry, it's also impressive that you drew crowds of gays and lesbians because all of the groups, the Mattachines, the Daughters of Belitis, they were all separated. There's little record of people working together at that point. The Daughters of Belitis, though, to give them credit, they were still existing when these raids happened in 67, and they actually contributed money to the defense to of the, the defendants. Defense of the so defendants. I yeah. do want to add that just for the historical record. They yes. were supportive. That's fantastic. We weren't opposed to each other. It just it was more homogeneous having just the the groups you knew and people who had belonged to your organization. I mean, some of the people in those bars that, where the raids happened were lesbians. They weren't just all gay men. In fact, I think one of them was a lesbian in kind of masculine dress. And they and the police attempted to arrest them. And it was a sister and her brother who were kissing after Old Syne had played that night. Yeah, that's wild. And then I want to talk about, too, at the, the trial, because people were arrested. Um, and the, the defense was very different for this trial, right? Yes, there are actually three things that make the uh, demonstration at the Black Cat historical. And it isn't that it was the first demonstration ever, or even that it was larger than anything else. The three things are this. The organ, one of the three organizations that uh, arranged the demonstration was Pride. After that demonstration took place, uh, Stonewall happened in 69. There was a meeting of gay organizations in the fall of 69 in Philadelphia. And they wanted to commemorate the first anniversary of Stonewall. So this is apparently what happened. I talked to one of the men who were at the meeting, and this is not in the history books. They were unsure what to do to commemorate the first anniversary. They said that they would call their counterparts in Los Angeles. They called their counterparts in Los Angeles and talked to someone who said that we've already had a, a pride demonstration to protest the, the uh, bar raids here. Why don't you hold the second pride demonstration? So it happened in 70. There were three uh, demonstrations, San Francisco, New York, and Los Angeles. And they had various names associated with them. It was Gay Liberation, Gay Freedom, and Pride. Of those names, only the pride name held. And so the demonstration in 67, February 11, 1967, is actually the first pride demonstration for which all worldwide pride stems from. That's the first important thing about that demonstration. So it's, it stemmed from L.A., which was originally the, the, the PRIDE, was the acronym of the Personal Defense and Education. Personal Rights Through Defense and Education. And that is why we call it PRIDE. It's not, it wasn't the meaning of PRIDE. It wasn't the I mean, word. Of course, it, it was led an, to that. It was an acronym. But. but the acronym was actually so much better than being called FAG, queer, or anything else. You know, to have PRIDE associated with you, it, it was a really good choice of an acronym. You know, most acronyms really are kind of passive. But pride was really good because the problem you had in 1966 if you were gay is you probably didn't have pride in yourself. You probably, you were so used to being told you were less than that even to associate the word pride with you is revolutionary in your mind. It causes a different mindset. That's probably why pride survived and gay freedom and gay liberation didn't. Yeah. We did all of these things not because we thought it would be, make anything famous. It's just that we were happy for a change and not feeling suppressed and hidden. You know, I can remember there were mounted police officers at the first parade down around Argyle, and there was a whole little group of them. And they, one of them kind of turned his horse around, and I was sitting there 
standing there, actually. And he looked over at me, and he took his hands, and he looked around in both directions, and he went like this to me, with a V for victory. And then he put, a, put it away real quick, after he had seen that I noticed. Wow. And that was powerful to me. It told me at that point that I was doing something right. This man, who was in the police department, was wishing us victory. Yeah, and we were talking earlier about like how things you can still get fired for being gay. We're talking a lot about police brutality that's still very much an issue. And while it's less so for gays and lesbians, it is not for like no, our trans community. And so, I mean, we're still fighting these fights. It's not over. Right. But you said that the three things came out of the trial. The first being the pride. First being the designation of pride and that the name pride for this movement yes. came out of that. The second thing was uh, when pride started in May of 66, it had what organizations generally had, which is a mimeographed newsletter that they would pass out with whatever information that they wanted to give their members. The uh, newsletter maintained the name Pride until the summer of 67. And then it adopted a new name, Pride-Advocate. By the fall of 67, it changed its name to Advocate, and uh, it was the rights were purchased by four men, and they put out in, I believe it was August of 67, the first Advocate newsletter. Uh, They had a circulation of 350 on that first one. Uh, That was the first real news source for gays, deliberate news source. And by the mid-70s, it had a circulation of 40,000. And then it became a mainstream magazine. That's still the advocate today. It's the longest-running gay news organization in the world. And it was the Pride Advocate. Yeah, it started as Pride. newsletter. It started as the Pride newsletter, uh, continuously all the way back. So uh, the longest-running gay news outlet in the world stems from that Pride organization that was formed in 66, and presumably without the impetus of that demonstration, wouldn't have switched focuses from being a social newsletter primarily to being a news a news newsletter secondarily. And then the third thing that came out of the demonstration was this. Of the 45 men that we know of that were arrested in the four bars, there were 14 arrested that first night at the New Faces and Black Cat. Of those, seven either were, they had their own trials, two had their own trials and were acquitted. Uh, two, I believe, pled guilty. Uh, and one or two, the charges were dropped. It was drunkenness charges and they were dropped. That left seven. The seven were, as far as I can tell in the record, not able to afford their own counsel. So the three organizations that formed the demonstration, the Tavern Guild, started to take up a collection of money to buy an attorney for these seven. They, the last record we have of how much they collected was $3,400, which is probably like 34000 this time. They hired an attorney that was recommended to them named Ray Smith. Maybe not incomprehensibly from an economic perspective, but from a legal perspective, he decided to try the seven together. And... What Smith decided to do was to have a defense that since it wasn't lewd conduct for a heterosexual couple to kiss, it should not be lewd conduct for a same-sex couple to kiss. The judge refused to allow that line of defense. He also refused to allow any defense about what actually had happened, about the police brutality that had happened, which was, we haven't talked about it, was incredibly severe At the trial, the police officers perjured themselves, submitted false written records. In one case, one of the officers came in with a sling, said he was injured, and as soon as the trial was over, took the sling off and had perfect function of his arm. 
they uh, lied on the stand. They committed every crime you could possibly think of. Of the seven, six were gay and one was straight, the straight bartender at the Black Cat. Now, the charges against the seven were this. Five were charged with kissing a member of the same sex for between three and five seconds. One was charged with kissing a member of the same sex between 10 and 15 seconds. And one was charged with a peck on the neck. That was the charge for lewd conduct. The jury deliberated. They came back. They found all six gay men guilty and the straight man not guilty. Now, the way they knew he was straight was during the trial... He had his girlfriend stand outside the courtroom door, and he would pet and kiss her as the jury walked back and forth. So he had a hung jury. He wasn't he wasn't uh, found innocent, but he had a hung jury. The other six were convicted. Uh, all six were given uh, the option of a fine or jail term, and all were registered as sex offenders under the code. When the trial ended, the people that had paid the money for the attorney were very upset. It was uh, they weren't. They weren't happy that the seven had been tried together and that that was the line of defense. So the ACLU stepped in, and they got an attorney called Herbert Selwyn, who actually ended up being also represented gay, uh, gay issues years past that and became very, uh, very connected with the community, but he was straight. But what Herbert Selwyn did was he took it up to the district court, then the California Supreme Court, and he appealed it all the way up to the United States Supreme Court on this basis that gay men and women are equal under the United States Constitution and that the law should be applied to them the same as everybody else. Now, that doesn't sound strange today. That was revolutionary in 1960, well, 1968, that was revolutionary, that anybody would put forward a defense that we were actually equal under the Constitution because, remember, at that time, we were still uh, defined as being mentally ill and our actions were defined as criminal. So that's pretty massive, to, that is. To say that. Was, it, was that significance understood at that time? Well, it was the right time to do that. That was the age when the uh, black civil rights movement was, was morphing from please give us rights to we demand our rights. That was when the Hispanics... Same the, with us. That was the Hispanics. This was the right time to do it. But all future defenses like what we had with the Supreme Court for same-sex marriage that says that we are equal under the Constitution, all of that stems back from the court cases of... Charles Talley and Benny Baker, the two defendants from the Black Cat, who appealed but did not win their appeal for the conviction at the raid that night. So that's the three things that came out of that that's so important. It's the beginning of the worldwide pride movement. It's the beginning of The Advocate, which is the oldest gay and lesbian news outlet in the world. And it was the first time that we ever know of that we were actually making a claim to equality under the Constitution as gay and lesbian Americans. That's very powerful. It is. It, it led the way, too. It did. You know, what happened between 67 and Stonewall commemoration 70 is these people did not go away. First, the advocate was there, and it was growing massively by the year in terms of the number of people that read it and that contributed to it. So people know, knew by the late 60s, that they were no longer alone. They were not the only people that felt that way, and they were not the only people that, uh, that thought that way. Now, that's a very empowering thought. One of the problems we have the transgender community recently is because the transgender community, by any accounts, is maybe 10% or 20% the size of the gay community, and we're small enough. And if the transgender community has to fight by themselves, they're, they're 
very small, but they're not small with us and with our supporters. That's how we have to go forward with the quest for civil rights is as a group, not dividing ourselves up by, by labels. Life has a funny way of turning. It does. David and I got married on 888 of 2008. At 1208. At 1208. And it meant a lot to me because me marrying David was a very auspicious thing. I mean, this man has been a gem in my life. It's the man I love. I didn't marry him just to be married. I married him because he was a wonderful man. And when I met him, what I had to look at was that I watched how he treated his friends. And I know he's going to blush, but he was so good to them that I thought to myself, I could not, not have anything else but a good life with him. And yeah. I love him very much. we've had much. a good life and an interesting and life. And that's the interview. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe to the podcast and then share it with your friends on social media. That is the biggest way you can help our show grow. So big thank you to everyone who's been sharing it. We love hearing from you every week. LGBT Q&A is broadcast from The Advocate Magazine Studio in Los Angeles. The Advocate, as you heard in this interview, has an amazing history. They were founded in 1967. That is the very same year of the Black Cat protests. Special thanks to our old home, After Buzz TV, to Jason McMurdy, and everyone for listening. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'll see you next week.